evening comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through to 5, verse 11. The coming of the Lord. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again so that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we are still alive and who are left who left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of, the, of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that... We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, Destruction will come on them suddenly. As labour pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day shall surprise you like the thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that while we were awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. This is the end of the second reading. Uh, Good morning, friends. Happy Mother's Day uh, from me. Two things would be great for you to have handy. One is uh, that part of the Bible open in front of you. We'll work through those verses fairly carefully. And the other is one of these outlines you have in your sheets. We'll refer to those as well. Uh, There is a word missing. Uh, We could play a game where you have to guess the word, but we won't do that. It's in the last line of the outline there. It says, therefore, and should say, encourage one another. Uh, It's the dominant application of this passage. So if you're a note taker, you can write in the word encourage and we'll just pretend I did that on purpose to highlight it at the start of the sermon. Let me pray and we'll consider that part of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your goodness to us in the Lord Jesus and we thank you uh, for the gift of your word about him. We pray it's to him our eyes will be drawn today and to him only and in particular to his glorious uh, return to us. We pray, Father, would you cast away any distractions, uh, those that we've brought uh, with us into the room, those that uh, have come to us within the room. Please, Father, would you help us work hard in this part of the Bible? Please, would you speak to us? Please, would you glorify your son? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Friends, I don't know about you, um, 
But I will never forget my first funeral. Uh, I was 18 years of age. I just moved out of home. Uh, and my grandfather, uh, a man who I deeply loved and was very close to and have um, taken, taken after very much, uh, he died. Um, I still remember being at the steelworks uh, and seeing my supervisor walk toward me with that kind of grey, hopeless look on his face. Um, I remember being called into the office of the social worker. Um, I, I remember that uh, sinking feeling in my stomach uh, in, in the few seconds that it took before she opened her mouth when I worked out why I'd been called in. And I remember the funeral. Uh, Those of you who know me well will know I have probably the worst memory in the world, but I remember the funeral. Um, I remember the hall we met in. I I remember the faces of my family. I remember the crowd that came. But most of all, I remember the massive difference between the grief of some of those in the room and the grief of others. It it, it was as if you could have drawn a line right down the centre of the building and on on one side there was nothing but hopeless despair and grief and on the other, well, I I can remember my little brother saying to me at the time, it it almost looks like they want to have a party. Now, Now, saying that they wanted to have a party is overstepping it just a little bit, but, but he was right. There was a radical, observable difference in the grief of some and the grief of others at the death of my grandfather. And the question we ask this morning is, why? What was it? What has the power to so radically transform your perspective on death? Even more than that, what has the power to to just as radically transform your perspective on life? See, I suppose I could be wrong, but it's my guess, having known some of them, that if I had followed home any number of those, if you like, party people, then I would have seen... Not only a radically different perspective on death, but a a radically different perspective on life. A perspective just as observable as what I saw in that hall. A perspective that gave that group a purpose and a meaning and a direction and hope. A perspective that stood them out from the world around them. A perspective that made them different and made them better. And the question we ask this morning is why? What has the power to do all that? To radically change your perspective on death. To radically change your perspective on life. And here, in the passage in front of us, Paul tells us, He tells us what is a wonderful, but I think tragically often neglected, particularly in our suburbs, truth about Jesus. Let's have a look together. Pick it up, verse 13. Verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. See, Paul begins with two desires for his friends in Thessalonica. The first is that they would not be uninformed. 
about those who fall asleep, that they, that they would not be ignorant about those who sleep in death. After all, if death does anything, it, it exposes our ignorance, doesn't it? It fills us with questions that, that seem beyond answer. And in particular, I think, questions about those we love who have died. Questions like what has happened to them? Where are they now? Are they okay? Are they still in pain? Will I see them again? Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant about those questions. I I do not want you to be uninformed, my brothers and sisters. Why? Well, here's his second desire. So you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Now, notice really carefully there what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, so you will not grieve, full stop. It's really, really important. We say it's right to grieve. We should Jesus grieve. Do you remember? At the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Even he who knew he was about to wake him up, even he grieved, he wept over death and so should we. But Paul says, not like the rest. Not like them. Why? Because we have hope. Only we have hope. Have a look at verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. See, you see what, what was the difference in that church hall at my grandfather's funeral? It was that half the room knew this and half the room didn't. It was that half the room knew Jesus died and rose again to life and half the room didn't. It was a half the room knew that because Jesus died and rose again, when he returns, so will we. One contemporary of Paul wrote, nobody wakes from death. Paul disagrees. Another wrote, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. God disagrees. He says that because Jesus died, because Jesus rose, because Jesus definitely will come again, we have hope. We will rise. See, that's why sleep is such a perfect description of Christian death, don't you think? After what is sleep? Well, God willing, probably perhaps depending on the age of your children, it's peaceful. It's... uh, it's temporary. It's, it's destined quickly to end when, when we awake, when we arise, when we get up out of our slumber and enter life again. And Paul says that's death for the Christian. That's death because he's coming. After, do you remember what Jesus said of Lazarus back in, in John chapter 11? Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go there to wake him up. Do you remember what Jesus said of Jairus' daughter in our reading from Matthew 9? that The girl is not dead, but asleep. And of course, how did the crowd respond? They laughed. 
They mocked. They knew, just as, just as we know, that nobody gets up from death. But then what did Jesus do? He took her by the hand and he woke her up. Now, it's fascinating. I wonder if you noticed there in our, in our reading, but, but in these verses here, this is in lots of other places in the Bible, Christians are never said to die. Instead, we merely fall asleep. Did you see it in these verses? Jesus, on the other hand, never falls asleep. Jesus dies. Jesus dies, we sleep. Indeed, because Jesus died, Christians only sleep. And because Jesus rose, all Christians, on the day that he returns, will wake up. And here's how it'll happen. From verse 15, do you see it? 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. See, from verse 15 there, we get the order of the resurrection. We see the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, the rapture, or perhaps better, the capture of those still alive and the reunion of us all. Return, resurrection, rapture, reunion. And see, Paul wants to reassure his readers that those who are asleep in Christ will not be disadvantaged. If anything, they'll be better off. It's them who'll rise first. After all, you can imagine, can't you, how the Thessalonians must have been worried. After all, they were the first generation after Jesus died and rose. They, like us, were waiting for Jesus' return. But, but now, some of them were dying. Were they going to miss all the good stuff? Were they going to miss the party? No, says Paul. Don't worry about those who sleep in Christ. They're invited too. Don't worry about yourselves either. Because it's not as like in one million years you could ever possibly miss this. There are some cult groups you might know, like the Jehovah's Witness, who want to tell us otherwise. They say that Jesus has already come back. Kind of snuck in, snuck out. But Paul says there will be no sneaking. You will not miss this. I mean, just have a look at it. How could you? The loud command, shout from the angel, blast from the trumpet, Lord coming, dead rising, us lifting. It's, it's all so spectacular. Opening ceremony, Olympic Games, eats your heart out. And as spectacular as it is, the best is left to last. Did you notice? It's as if all the details have just been the drum roll to the big finish of verse 17 and so we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with the Lord forever. And I once C.S. Lewis wrote in a book about the death of his wife how for a while he had made the mistake of treating Jesus as more like the road rather than the destination. 
is more like the means to be reunited with those he loves rather than the end that he longed for. And I wonder if, like me, you've ever done that. Looked forward to the stuff of heaven, the peace of heaven, the perfection of heaven, even the reunion of heaven, even more than the God of heaven. Have you ever imagined heaven with God strangely absent? Or perhaps just sitting in the background? Well, Paul refuses to make that mistake. Instead, well, instead Paul looks forward to heaven a bit like my kids look forward to Christmas. I don't know if it's like this for you when you were growing up or like this for you now maybe or it was like this for you for your kids or grandkids. But at the end of every year, our family packs up for the, for the 20 hour grandparent circuit. And so, so we load up the car and the kids get loaded in, the snacks get loaded in, the toys get loaded in with, along with as many electronic uh, distractions as we can find and, and, and we start the journey and we continue the journey and we continue the journey and we continue the journey and, and, and as much as the kind of are we there yet multiply the longer the journey goes on so too does something else. Can you guess what it is? It's the excitement, the anticipation, even the longing. And, and I suppose grandma's kind of delicious homemade sausage rolls have a lot to do with that. And, and I suppose Gran and Gramps' very cool jumping castle slash water slide uh, has something to do with that. But Do you know what? When we at last stop that car and the doors fling open and the kids fly out, it's not the sausage rolls they fly to. And it's not the jumping castle they cling to. It's Gran and Gramps. It's Grandma and Grandad. It's they who make Grandma and Grandad's Grandma and Grandad's. It's they who make grand and gramps is grand and gramps is. And so it will be for me, Paul says. So it should be for you, Paul says. It's God we will run to when at last he calls us home. It's Jesus we will cling to when he returns again. Therefore, encourage one another, Paul says. See it there, verse 18? With these words. Jesus is coming. Say it to each other, Paul says. So, we're going to do that in a very unpresbyterian move, I realise, right now. I want to encourage you, right now, it's only going to work, we all do it together, so please help me out here. Turn to the person beside you on the count of three, I want you to say, Jesus is coming. Are you ready? I'll count us in. One, two, three, turn and say, Jesus is coming. Alright, that's not too bad, but let's say it again. To each other, Jesus is coming. And then say that again when death comes. Because it will come. 
Now, it may not feel like it now, especially to you young'uns in the room, you young and invincibles. Actually, I think for most of us we don't imagine our own deaths coming soon, but it will come. Unless Jesus returns first, you will die. Your friends will die. Your family will die. And if they do, before we do, let's encourage each other with these words. And, and, and not only for, for hope into death, but for purpose into life. See, if Jesus is coming back, I guess the thing you want to do is, is get yourself ready. After all, the hope he offers in death is, is only for those who are ready when he returns. If you're not ready, then your future is worse than hopeless. So the question is, of course, how do you get ready? Perhaps, perhaps some of us will think the thing to do is, is to do what so many of the cults have done is, and try to guess the date. After all, at least if you knew that, you could kind of keep mucking up, doing your own thing until right at the last minute. You know, a, bit, a bit like the naughty kids at school, remember them? Used to post the lookout at the door when the teacher left and know when they're coming back, do what you want. Oh, they're coming! Ready. No, Paul says. It's not about knowing when. Have a look, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as as labour pains in a pregnant woman and and they will not escape. You see, about the, the timing of Jesus' return, Paul says, there's no need for me to write. Why? Because you already know that you can't know. As someone once put it, if there's one thing certain about the timing of the Lord's return, it's this. No one can be certain about the timing. It's like a break-in, Paul says. Like a birth. You know, twice when Eric and I lived up north, uh, we had our garage broken into. A whole bunch of stuff taken. And, and do you know, each time, inconveniently, the thieves forgot to tell us they were coming. Three times when we lived up north and once more here, Erica gave birth to our kids. And do you know, inconveniently, they weren't much better than those thieves. Don't get me wrong, we we did kind of know they were on their way. The big bulging belly was a a sure sign of that. But but we didn't know when. And that's what we like at the Lord's return, Jesus says. The labour pains will be unavoidable. The timing will be unpredictable. The Lord's return will be like that, unavoidable but unpredictable. Certain but sudden. It could be two centuries. It could be two decades. It could be two days. It could be two minutes. He could be back before this sermon's done. The two minute end rather than the two decade end. Don't worry about that. But he will definitely come, Paul says. And for those who aren't ready, verse 3, there will be no escape. So again we ask, how do you get ready? We get ready, Paul says, not by sorting out when, but by sorting out who. See, being prepared for the return of Jesus is not knowing when he will return, it's about who you are while you wait. See, that's Paul's point there, you see it in verse 4 to 8, as he, as he contrasts two types of people, those who are ready and those who aren't. Those whose whole lives are shaped and directed toward the Lord Jesus' return and 
those who choose to ignore it and he only sees two groups. It's as different as light and dark, verse 5. As night and day, Paul says. It's as different as awake and asleep, verse 6. It's sober and drunk. See, for those who are ready for Jesus' return, the sun's already risen. The dawn's already come. It's, it's not that they will one day enter the light. No, they're already living in the light. At every moment, every decision, they live for Jesus' return. The unprepared, on the other hand, they couldn't be more different. Do you see them? It's as if they're living in the dark, verse 5, like living with their eyes closed. It's as if they're stumbling drunk, verse 7, kind of unconscious to reality. Jesus is coming, but they're unaware. Jesus is coming, but they're unprepared. And when he comes, it'll be too late. One of the students on campus asked us a question recently after one of the Bible talks. She said, how long exactly do we have when Jesus gets back to make a decision about him. How long does my husband have, she said, when Jesus returns to change his mind about Jesus? Answer? No long. No time. Then it will be too late. Now is the time to decide. Now is the time to live for him. The author C.S. Lewis once wrote about Jesus' return, God will invade and when that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. And this time it'll be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. And it will be too late then to choose your side. That will be not be the time for choosing, he says. It will be the time to discover what we really have chosen whether we realise it or not. Now, today, in this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance, but it will not last forever. We must take or leave it. And Paul agrees. Jesus agrees. Now, at this time, in this moment, is the time to choose Jesus. Friends, can I say, if you're in the room and you know in your heart of hearts you haven't done that but you want to, would you please talk to someone today? Now's the time. And for those of us who already have, for those of us who already do trust Jesus and live toward his, and believe that he will return, Paul's encouragement is to live like it. If we belong to the day, see verse 8, live like it. If we believe that he's coming, live like it. Hold lightly to the things of this world. Hold tightly to this promise of God. A great philosopher said once, life can only be understood backwards. That is, from the perspective of the end, from the perspective of the goal, Paul says, this is our end. This is our goal. Verse 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So whether we're awake or asleep, we will live together with him and so let's live like it. In the way we give our money, like Jesus is coming back, 
in the way we love our neighbour, like Jesus is coming back, in the way we speak of Jesus, like Jesus is coming back, in, in, our, in our fight against temptation, in our, in our patience, in our suffering, in, in our hope in the face of death, in our purpose in this life. Let's together, as brothers and sisters in Christ, refuse to let those petty little goals of this world, better house, better car, better body, better holiday, better experience, better meal, which we then post on Facebook. Let's refuse to let those petty little goals overshadow and eclipse this great goal that we're supposed to be living toward. Friends, if we believe Jesus is coming back, we must live like it. As a preacher at University Conference said to me, believe that, he, believe that he's coming again or admit you really don't, but either way, live the way you believe. Friends, at the bottom of your outline, we've got something to help us do that. You'll see in big bold print, hopefully unmissable, Jesus is coming. Friends, can I encourage you this week to put that in a prominent place, in your home, in your office, in the bag you take to school, somewhere you'll see it. Let's this week, even if just this week, make an extra effort to believe Jesus is coming and let's live a life of purpose because he is. Well, as you wrap it up, I want to tell you one last story and that is about my daughter, Emily, about when she was four years old. When she was four years old, she went through this phase um, of hating being left behind by her mum. Erica would take her to creche and, and try to leave her there and, and Emily would cling to her legs and just sobbing her eyes out. And, and so one day, what did Erica do? Well, she looked down into her teary little eyes and her sobbing little face and she looked at her and said, Emily, mummy always comes back. Do you understand? Mummy always comes back. A few weeks later, we were chatting with one of the creche helpers and they were telling us about conversations they'd had with our Am when she'd get knocked over one of the bad boys or, or she was a little bit sad and, and they'd ask if she was okay and do you know what she would say? Mummy always comes back. Mummy always comes back. Friends, this morning, that's what Paul says to us. That's what Jesus says to us. Jesus always comes back. Jesus is coming. And so verse 11, encourage each other with these words and build each other up as you're already doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that Jesus always comes back. We praise you that Jesus is coming. We praise you for the hope that that gives us into death and the purpose that that gives us in this life. Our Father, we do believe and we long to believe it even more deeply. We pray for your help to live as though we do. Our Father, please would you make this the end and the goal that we live towards. And because of it, would you help us hold lightly to all those petty little goals that our world holds out to us and help us hold tightly to this. Help us stand out from our world and live different for your glory and for the good of those around us. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.